At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. You can't really stand there and say, I fundamentally don't believe who you are, but don't worry, I'm going to support you in the rest of your life. Um, You are then taking your power, your power as cisgender people, and wielding it against trans people in deeply destructive ways. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we are talking to the Deputy Director for Trans Justice at the ACLU, Chase Strangio. Also, I have some choice words about race norming. Wait till you hear what that is. I also have Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down Awards, Kaepernick Watch, and more. But first, let me do a proper introduction for Trace Strangio. On the Edge of Sports Podcast, we are closely following the issue of the demonization of trans women athletes and the battle to take away their right to take the field. If you're looking for arguments as to why these ideas about trans women are falsehoods and the people pushing these ideas are reactionary and wrongheaded in the extreme, listen to our show last month with trans athlete legend and activist Chris Mosier. There we went through the arguments. Here we are talking about the fight. And I can't think of anyone better than Chase Strangio, the Deputy Director for Trans Justice at the ACLU, with whom to have this discussion. Hello, Chase. Hello. Thanks for having me. No, very happy to have you. It, it, it's our honor. Thanks for coming back. Um, it, it's been difficult to keep up with all the news on this issue as it's been unfurling in the different states. And I was hoping perhaps you could give us a rundown. Uh, Where are we right now? First in Mississippi, but also South Dakota, anywhere else. Can you give us a rundown of of the state of affairs right now in the different states? Yeah, no, it is. It it has been absolutely relentless and and difficult to keep track of. I, I truly have never seen anything like this in terms of the magnitude and scope of these attacks on trans kids. Um, where we are right now is that Mississippi has um, become the first state this year to uh, sign into law an anti-trans uh, bill. And this one, like many of the others that are pending, focuses on barring trans uh, girls specifically uh, from sports. So that that was signed into law um, recently by Governor Reeves in, in Mississippi, uh, which is, you know, I think hard to to stomach for many reasons, but uh, it's not lost on me that, you know, currently Jackson, many residents of Jackson are without clean water, some without power. Uh, you know, you have the state being ravaged by COVID and all of these other crises, and yet the governor's stepping in and acting like this is the single most important priority of this moment. Um, so so Mississippi became the, the first state to, to sort of sign into law one of these bills in 2021. 
right now we have um, the only other state who's actually passed one of the anti-transport bills through both chambers is South Dakota. And again, this has been incredibly depressing. South Dakota has introduced a ban on trans kids in sports um, six times over the last seven years, uh, which is just, you know, it's it's just it's, it's sort of impossible to credit, you know, the idea that this is something that lawmakers should be focused on. Um, and actually, the bill was defeated in, in a Senate committee in South Dakota, and they used a procedure to, to smoke it out onto the floor, essentially, even though it was killed by a vote of six to three in the Senate committee, it was brought to the floor and ultimately passed. Now, the governor of South Dakota, Kristi Noem, had tweeted favorably about the bill several days ago, um, but it's you know, she since walked back her comments and has not yet signed the bill. So I think there is a real question about whether a veto campaign is going to be effective in moving her and, and, and whether a veto might be possible. Although I think it's likely that we'll see South Dakota being the second state this year to pass one of these laws and, and, and have a governor sign it. Um, and then Tennessee is also very close to passing one. Um, it's passed through one chamber uh, and we'll, we'll come to a vote soon in the House. Um, and Governor Lee in, in Tennessee has, like Governor Reeves in Mississippi, sort of tweeted enthusiastically about the idea of banning trans kids from sports and 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 sort of both Reeves and, and, and Lee, rather than sort of use this sort of mass rhetoric of protecting women, which is in and of itself offensive, both Reeves and, and, and Lee have gone to the next level and said, we must protect kids from quote unquote transgenderism and, and sort of enthusiastically um, talked about the idea of banning trans kids from sports. And then there's still about uh, 10 other ones of these passing uh, through state legislatures, two of which are actually constitutional amendments in Arkansas and Missouri. So lawmakers are proposing uh, amending the Constitution to bar trans kids from sports and and putting the vote, uh, putting it on the ballot, uh, which is, you know, for so many reasons, catastrophic. But the idea of a coordinated campaign at a ballot level that targeting kids in this way is just unfathomable. So it's it's really been been relentless and it's it's expanding everywhere. How, how do you explain the coordinated nature of these attacks and why it's happening now in 2020, 2021, especially amidst all of this crisis that's throughout U.S. society and the world. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 almost impossible to to sort of tell the story of what's going on with a straight face when you look at sort of the COVID pandemic and all of these climate crises and the just crisis of education generally. The idea that they're pushing these bills when so many kids aren't even in school, interscholastic activities have been so compromised by the pandemic and kids are losing so much to think that we would have our lawmakers put resources and energy into finding ways to further harm and restrict the abilities of young people to access education is just unconscionable. But I think you can really trace this to uh, back to 2015 when the Supreme Court ruled um, in Obergefell striking down bans on marriage equality uh, that, you know, you had sort of tons of resources going into stopping, you know, same-sex couples from marrying over the course of many decades. And after the loss for the opponents of LGBT people and marriage equality at the Supreme Court, there was an incredibly agile shift to attacking trans kids. We saw it immediately. Obergefell comes down in June of 2015. By November of 2015, at a ballot fight in Houston, Texas, we saw the shift in discourse to the threat of trans people in bathrooms. And by the beginning of 2016, much like what we're seeing now, we had the proliferation of anti-trans bathroom bills targeting mostly trans kids in schools in a lot of the same states that we're talking about now, um, South Dakota, Tennessee, Arkansas. Um, and what we saw between 2016 and 2019 was sort of the rise in the anti-trans rhetoric in bathrooms.
bathrooms, but the, the, the defeat of that rhetoric. We right. were able to fight back at the ballot. We were able to fight back in legislatures. They lost in court, and it was just a largely unsuccessful fight. But it was an incredibly well-funded fight on that side. And so, you know, they were doing their research and it ended up in a position starting in 2019 to shift tactics to, to zero in on sports, sports and healthcare for trans young people. And those are sort of the two areas where we're seeing the rise in attacks. And it almost singularly focused beginning in 2019 on two of my clients, Terry uh, Miller and Andrea Yearwood in Connecticut, who are these two young track athletes, two young black women who are trans, who became sort of the center of this fire storm largely through sort of the Fox News, um, you know, Breitbart, Federalist, Daily Caller sort of media landscape sort of elevating this issue into this idea that there's this fundamental threat posed by the bodies of young trans women. Um, and that resulted in the summer of 2019 into a coordinated effort among groups like ALEC, Alliance Defending Freedom, Heritage Foundation, and some other smaller groups in sort of drafting these model pieces of legislation and then funneling the discourse through, you know, sort of the echo chamber of media, both in the UK and the US that led to the proliferation of these bills in 2020. Um, and then given that many sessions were, you know, ended early in 2020 because of COVID, and then also in the interim, you had the the election of President Biden and the Supreme Court's uh, decision in Bostock, essentially fueling this into the perfect storm of attacks in 2021, which is what we're seeing now. Now, this seems like something that's right up Governor Kristi Noem's alley, you know, something that she would sign without hesitation and with a big smile and lots of cameras. So I'm curious what might be causing her even a moment's hesitation, because Maybe that opens a window for how we can challenge these bills. Yeah, no, that's a really that's a really good question because you know she has been out there, you know, sort of you know leading the crusade against masks in the COVID context. You know, definitely has national ambitions within the Republican Party, um, and this does seem to be sort of a favorite talking point of the Republican Party right now. You had you know former President Trump speaking about it at CPAC. You have you know a lot of U.S. senators focusing on this in a multitude of ways. Um, so so I think you're right that we expected her to sort of gleefully sign the bill immediately and do some big, you know, spectacle around it. I think that it's also true that that this issue, um, if, I'm imagining if you're a Republican strategist and you're planning out into the future, um, this is likely to be a short-term winner for, for, for the party. And, and if you have long-term ambitions and you want to look like you're protecting your state, generally speaking, I do think that there are real concerns for some Republican governors who may be less ideological in certain ways, but have sort of national ambitions that the economic consequences of this, the actual sort of public attention and backlash, both from, you know, hopefully entities like the NCAA and other um, sporting associations and then larger business groups um, are, are, are putting pressure on her and giving her some pause. Um, you know, I think that you know, that's the hope. Unfortunately, she's made it clear that she's not interested in talking to trans young people or their families. So it's um, unlikely that that's going to be the thing that sways her, although maybe she is following the media and has some sense of concern for what this would mean for, for young people and their families. And the other thing to note with the South Dakota bill in particular, it's it, it's incredibly broad and would require the turning over of genetic information of all student athletes to the government. So if you're, you know, ostensibly a small government uh, person, that there's definitely a big government component to, to what these bills do and the level of privacy intrusions and into the intrusions of sort of the family itself, which is a conservative, um, you know, 
you know, should be, a, you know, based on the principle itself, a conservative position. So, you know, over the next few days, we're absolutely ramping up pressure on the governor. And even if she ultimately signs that we want it to be something that fuels backlash, um, you know, across the country as other states consider uh, this type of legislation. She should have to wear that uh, for the entirety of her career if she signs it into law. Um, you, you spoke a little bit to this at the end there, but perhaps you could speak about how these laws open up attacks, not just on trans girls, but but all women athletes and all and all students. All it, uh, how, how does it just extend so far beyond the issue of, of trans rights? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, in all of these states that are considering these bills, they already have sort of a, a paradigm for sex separation in sport generally. And it's a paradigm that has existed for ever and, and has, you know, by and large been working in the sense that, you know, we, we are totally underinvested in women and girls sports and that's its own problem. But but it's not like there's, you know, constantly this sense of are our, our, our cis boys trying to compete in girls sports or is there some fundamental effort to collapse the categories um, as they're generally constituted? Although I think that is perhaps an important conversation about why we have sex separation generally. But, but what sort of the paradigm already exists. So what these bills do is sort of input an overlay on that that essentially requires the state to come in and police the categories and new in sort of new and incredibly intrusive ways. And so what I mean by that is, you know, they, these bills have mechanisms to allow for people to dispute the sex of any women or girl athlete. Um, and then in order to, quote unquote, establish your sex, you have to put forth a huge amount of private medical and genetic information. Um, and so what, you know, what, what it ends up looking like is a lot like the history of policing of women's elite sports at the Olympic level, you know, 50 years ago, where you had sort of the history of requiring athletes to parade naked in front of a panel of judges to, to assess their bodily characteristics to quote unquote, determine that they were really women. Um, and then, you know, moving from the sort of policing of the naked body into the chromosomal checks that also happened at the international level. And then both of those practices have long since been abandoned at the international level because of the human rights violations inherent to them. And also because they were, you know, proven to be irrelevant as to the sort of question of athleticism and the regulating the category of women's sports. And so here we are in the United States in 2021, um, sort of reintroducing these deeply intrusive, mechanisms of policing the body of women athletes that were used at the most elite stages and then abandoned and implementing them at the K through 12 level. Um, and what we know about, you know, the policing of women and girls generally and particularly in sport is that there, you know, there is a tendency in sort of because of the history of anti-black racism in the United States and misogyny is that what happens is and you you are essentially emboldening people to regulate and scrutinize the body of young women and girls and that's disproportionately going to harm black women and girls is disproportionately going to harm queer women and girls who are gender nonconforming. And the majority of athletes in women's sports are cisgender. So these are going to harm cisgender, black and brown, young women and girls and and sort of create both registries and systems by which the state is emboldening private individuals and then collecting information to establish who is enough of a girl to participate in, in youth athletics. And, and I think it should be a, sort of a, a huge red fat flag, a five alarm fire of anyone to think about the idea that we are, you know, allowing people to dispute 
the sex of young girls and then requiring that those people sort of subject themselves to intrusive procedures at the hands of the government, um, particularly when you think about all of the ways the government harms, you know, young black and brown people in this country, uh, this is going to be a crisis um, in general. Uh, and, and you can't actually, you know, and we've seen this time and time again with these sort of legal efforts to exclude trans people from categories um, of, of sex separation is that it requires the implementation of some mechanism that is never going to be limited just to trans people. Um, once you implement this type of policing, it's going to it's going to reach much more broadly. And I think that's what we're going to see in the coming years. And I, I, I think people who are calling for these type of bills or tacitly supporting them are, are, are going to really regret what they've done. Now, there are a group of prominent cisgender former women athletes who are ostensibly politically liberal that have taken up the cause of keeping trans girls out of sports. I was wondering if you could ask what they're doing and how damaging do you think it's been for the side of people trying to protect the civil liberties of trans people? Yeah, I mean, so, so you know, over the past few years, we've sort of seen a group of, of sort of uh, cis women athletes, retired mostly, um, who have, you know, per, you know, had a history of success in, in women's sports and who who themselves were, were sort of subject to policing and violence and in sort of as women athletes um, at the Olympic level, at the collegiate level, at the professional level. Um, and they have sort of established this cohort pushing for the exclusion of trans girls uh, from girls sport or the over-regulation of the bodies of, of trans women and girls. And so um, what we're, you know, what we're seeing is, and one of the reasons why we've seen such an escalation here is it's not just the the usual suspects of anti-LGBT advocates, but there's a sort of middle group of people who have a history of sort of association with feminism broadly or, or sort of more liberal causes who have taken up the mantle of attacking trans people um, in the service of protecting the the notion that women's sports is, is sort of for cisgender women, um, sort of most fundamentally. And this isn't the first time that we that we've seen this. I think you can look at the history of, of sort of any movement and the women's movement in particular and sort of see all of the ways that you've had sort of subsets of people who are more proximate to power using that power to try to exclude others. Um, and that is an unfortunate reality of sort of social movements generally. I think one of the really harmful things that's happening here is, is that you have people who have, have, you know, spent their careers advocating for women in sports, um, whether it's, you know, focusing on investment of resources or, or, or sort of combating the sexual abuse and sexual harassment of women athletes, sort of now using their their power to, to say that the quote unquote real threat to the future of women's sports is somehow trans women and girls and that you know, what we really need to do is come to some compromise position that protects cisgender athletes from trans athletes while still sort of ostensibly accommodating trans athletes in some way. I think what's so damaging about that is that it sort of, it, it sort of irrevocably pits trans and cis women, you know, against each other. And this idea that, um, that you have to uh, sort of legitimize the, the sort of realness of the cis woman as compared to the trans woman um, is going to have far-reaching consequences across law and, and, and political advocacy. And, and I think that their unwillingness to see how harmful it is to sort of implement these norms of regulating the bodies of young trans athletes and sort of situating them outside the category of woman and girl um, is, is a violent act um, and one where, you know, we're seeing sort of the 
escalation of this rhetoric in so many contexts, whether it's J.K. Rowling focusing on trans people as threat or Abigail Schreier, who has this book called uh, Irreversible Damage, focusing on the, it's, you know, the quote unquote harms of allowing young assigned female at birth people to affirm their male genders. Um, that this is part of a very dynamic and violent movement that they're aligning themselves with and then looking at trans people and saying, why won't you engage with us? Um, and I think it's just really hard to stomach and and that they're doing a lot of damage, it's particularly at a moment when trans people are experiencing so much discrimination generally that we can't even find many trans athletes in sport. And so you have people who have all this power and this mi loud microphone at the moment. And instead of using it to say, what can we do to invest in women's sports generally, which has been our sort of focus of our careers, they're using their, their power and their microphone to say, well, I, we want to turn our attention to attacking trans youth. Yeah, they like to say that their focus is just on trans women and girls in sports, and they're otherwise very trans affirming, but they're really just opening the door for broader legal attacks against trans people, particularly trans youth. Do they, do they acknowledge that? Is there any acknowledgement that they're actually quite contradictory when they say they're trying not to do any harm outside of sports, but are in fact standing with people and linking arms with people who are trying to push this into directions. And I think you agree with this far beyond the world of sports when it comes to um, policing and attacking trans youth. No, no, there is no acknowledgement. And I think that's what's, what's incredibly frustrating is that they'll testify at hearings talking about how trans people aren't excluded from the from sports altogether because a trans girl can still play on the boys team but the idea that you could sort of advocate for a position in law that would use the power of the government to force a trans young person to essentially not be trans um that they that to, to, to tell a trans young person you have to you know to be a girl in your you know in in your 8 to 2 p.m. day, but we're going to force you to be a boy after two um, and not see that that's going to open the door to all sorts of, of legal discrimination. And, and if the second you codify um, sort of explicit discrimination against a category of people, it, it opens the door to all sorts of intrusions upon their um, upon their legal protections, health and well-being and survival, particularly at this moment when we're seeing a coordinated effort to not just police people out of sports, but to criminalize the health care of trans young people. And these bills are being pushed in tandem. So the second that they align with the with the power dynamics in the, in the way that tips the scale towards attacks on trans people, they are giving momentum, not just to the people who would exclude trans girls from sports, but the same people who are looking to make it a felony to provide you know, life-saving medical treatment to trans kids across the country. Um, and so you can't really stand there and say, I fundamentally don't believe who you are, but don't worry, I'm going to support you in the rest of your life. Um, you are then taking your power, your power as cisgender people, and wielding it against trans people in deeply destructive ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm glad you, you said that, that phrase, in tandem, because that's what people have to realize, is that these bills, as harmful as they are individually, never come a la carte. Mm -mm. Nope. Um, where are we on the federal level? Where, where do you feel like the Biden administration is on all of this? Have they been strong enough? What, what, what is your position on that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think we're in a really tenuous place at the federal level, too, for a lot of reasons. And it's not really, you know, necessarily the fault of the of the Biden administration, um, because we are living in a moment where, you know, you have even, you know, on the first day of the Biden presidency, they issued an executive order essentially saying, we're going to follow federal law. You know, all the order said was the Supreme Court ruled in June of 2020 that federal prohibitions on sex discrimination include LGBT people, and we're going to enforce that, unlike our, you know, predecessors. And the second that that executive order comes down, there's massive outcry and backlash about, you know, erasing women and girls and erasing women and girls in sports. And, and so we're in this moment where no matter what happens, that even if it's just a broad-based affirmation of civil rights protections, generally, the immediate backlash is talking about how if we protect trans people, then we're quote-unquote erasing women, um, which is both paternalistic, it's, you know, patriarchal and misogynist, and then it's trans misogynist because it's sort of fundamentally, atta fundamentally attacking the, the womanhood of, of trans women and girls. Um, I think that what we can expect, you know, we had the, the Biden administration has um, sort of uh, revoked the position of the Trump administration in litigation. So we have two cases involving sports, one in Connecticut where um, we're defending trans athletes from attacks by cis athletes in a lawsuit brought by ADF. And the Trump administration had filed a, a, a statement of interest in support of the cisgender athletes and a sort of uh, favoring striking down Connecticut's affirming policy. Um, you know, a few weeks ago, the Biden administration sort of ish, uh, sort of filed a position with the court saying that is no longer the position of the federal government. And they did the same thing in the Ninth Circuit in our challenge to Idaho's discriminatory law that was passed in 2020. So we know that they're taking some actions. I think that the areas where we have to be incredibly concerned are that we know that the federal judiciary has been transformed quite substantially in, in after four years of President Trump. And so any any positive action that's taken by this administration, we can expect to be immediately challenged in court and in courts that are probably going to be pretty hostile to transgender rights. And so I think in that sense, the, the power of the executive is constrained by what we're seeing in the judiciary. And then we're also dealing with the reality that the Equality Act, which is the piece of federal legislation that has been introduced um, over the past several years, um, but not passed, that would explicitly expand civil rights protections for LGBT people, for all women, you know, Title II of the Civil Rights Act, which prohibits discrimination in public accommodations, has no sex protections, um, in part because of sort of the history of Anita Bryan and the, the fixation on bathrooms. There are real limits under federal law to existing sex protections and thereby inclusive of LGBT people. So this piece of legislation is pending. It passed the House for the second time a few weeks ago and is now set for hearing in the Senate Judiciary Committee, which is a committee that includes, you know, Josh Hawley, you know, Ted Cruz, Senator I mean, we are, it is a committee primed for very ex explosive rhetoric from, um, you know, skilled, you know, as, uh, you know, very evil, but skilled legal questioners. And, and I think that it's, despite the fact that this piece of legislation has, you know, substantial effects on, on civil rights protections for so many groups of people, I think we can expect the hearing to focus almost myopically on the issue of trans girls in sports. Just, and the irony, of course, is that the Equality Act doesn't even amend Title IX, which is a federal law that prohibits sex discrimination in education and has been largely used to protect uh, women and, and girls in sports. So it's sort of a misplaced fixation, even in the context that it's, you know, being introduced. But 
I think the rhetoric is going to be a damaging for the trans people listening. It's going to the vitriol is is escalating beyond measure. Um, I think it's going to fuel backlash in the states. So we're in the position where you have Congress considering a protective piece of legislation, but the rhetoric against trans people escalating, and then sort of Republican supermajority legislatures are going to use that to fuel their anti-trans sports bills, and then you have the federal executive being sort of largely constrained by the realities of the judiciary. And so I think you know this is why we are seeing so many constraints on action, because you have Congress at an impasse because of the filibuster in the Senate. You have the executive constrained, you know, by itself in many ways, and I have my own critiques, but then also by the reality that even when it does try to do things, we're seeing these lawsuits being filed in the Northern District of Texas, and then those actions being enjoined. Um, and so I think it's a real, you know, we have to really look at the way in which government is very limited, and, and what does it look like to really build movements to support people that are under attack? Hmm. Chase, you've been so generous with your time. Is is there anything else that I'm missing that you that you want to get across on this question? I mean, I think just, you know, I guess I guess coming back to the human element of it, you know, the, these bills are targeting kids and, and I'll and I'll go back to my clients, Terry and Andrea, the runners in Connecticut who, you know, are 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 two black, you know, trans girls in the world who are facing so much discrimination, so much violence by the systems of white supremacy and, and transphobia that are going to constrain that what they can do in the world, which is so unfair. And then they find love in sport. They get to have camaraderie with their teammates, enjoy sport, um, have an outlet. They're the incredibly resilient brilliant young people. And yet, and then look what happens. There's a national campaign assaulting them every step of the way, taking the joy out of the sport for them. Neither of them were recruited to compete in collegiate athletics, and both of them quit the sport because of these attacks. And so at the core of this issue is is taking away the, the joy, the love of sport from the young athletes who are just looking to participate like their peers. And and I hope that those of us that are advocating for, for young people, the young people themselves will ultimately look back on this time and, and and it will be a blip in a larger trajectory towards, you know, transformative justice for our communities. But but right now it's hurting a lot of people. How can people help? How can they stay up on what is happening? How can they stay connected with the work that you're doing? I mean, I think so. Follow the ACLU has a build tracker. We're trying to keep up with everything that's happening. I use my Twitter at Chase Strangio and my Instagram um, at Chase Strangio to sort of put regular updates about the bills, what actions people can take. You know, we need constituents in these states to contact their lawmakers. Our opponents are driving constituent contact in incredibly, you know, aggressive ways, and we need to meet that. Um, and we need to, we need to fight back and we really need cis women athletes to fight back we need to hear loudly that we don't want this you know that people don't want this done in their name because all of these bills are called protect save women sports protect women and girls vulnerable children protection act and it's like you know they're being done in people's names and i think the people who are you know opposed to this type of discriminatory action really have a, an obligation to speak out as much as they can right on and we're talking some very serious subject matter, but I always ask folks before they go what music they're listening to these days, particularly when you're going through something rough like this kind of battle, you know, something to either chill you out or inspire you. What's on your playlist these days, Jace? Yeah, well, so it's, it's a real combination right now. I've been really into Drag Race UK and then listening to the UK hunt. Uh, Drag Race UK song has been just like pepping me up. Um, and then I'm also listening to Emily King and Alabama Shakes and, um, you know, just trying to have that combination of like rev me up and also sort of like soothe my soul when when things get rough. So working it through. Yeah, we're on a Brittany Howard kick in this house. So I, I do feel you. 
on that in a big way. Hey, Chase, th thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. Thanks, Dave. It's great to see you and talk to you. Appreciate yeah. all you do. Be well. You too. Thanks, man. Bye. And now a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. If you want to stay on the cutting edge of the cultural conversation, you need to subscribe to The Nation's newest newsletter, Books and the Arts. With this newsletter, you'll receive a curated selection of The Nation's latest cultural criticism, along with a short essay exclusively for newsletter subscribers written by the Books and the Arts editors themselves. Don't worry, we won't clog your inbox. The world of books, arts, music, film, and more will be delivered to your inbox every two weeks. It's something worth looking forward to. Subscribe to this thought-provoking, agenda-setting newsletter at thenation.com slash book newsletter. That's thenation.com slash book newsletter. All one word. Subscribe today. And now, we are back on the podcast with some choice words. Okay, look. On Monday, I received a press release from the law firm of Zuckerman Spader, the representatives of former NFL players Kevin Henry and Naja Davenport, who are suing the league for racial discrimination. A federal court had just tossed their case and instead ordered mediation to resolve the dispute. Rent of the firm. This lawsuit had revolved around Henry and Davenport's contention that the league's landmark $1 billion concussion settlement doles out less to black players because of a practice known as race norming. The mediation called for by the judge would not include representatives for the black athletes and instead involved just the league and the courts, quietly scrubbing this practice away from prying eyes. I saw articles about this lawsuit as well in the lead up to the Super Bowl, and a question had crawled into my brain over the last month. What the hell is race norming? And why is it being used to determine benefits for the concussion settlement? The practice of race norming harkens back 40 years, when aptitude scores as part of federal jobs applications were adjusted to account for the race and ethnicity of the person taking the test. It was an admission that these tests were in fact racially biased. Race norming was first used by the Carter administration and then further implemented and extended by Reagan in 1981 before being subsequently outlawed by George H.W. Bush's so-called Civil Rights Act of 1991. Again, the purpose of race norming was actually to counteract racial bias in aptitude tests. In other words, its goal was to correct racist practices, not to implement them. Race norming soon became a juicy target for the right wing, called by George Will, liberalism's apartheid of compassion. The Bowtied One further wrote in his 1991 syndicated column that, quote, such remedies so obviously poison society. For Will and his ilk, attempted cures are always the scourge, while racism itself gets to fester without even a scant critique. Yet, here is race norming, supposedly a civil rights violation against white people, being used not to correct racial imbalances, but to codify and exploit them. Because black people have a higher rate of dementia as seniors, just a part of the poorer health statistics that haunt the black community as a result of institutionalized racism, the league's testing starts with the assumption that black athletes have a lower cognitive functioning baseline. That makes it more difficult to show the effects of post-concussive syndromes and qualify for the settlement. This is racist as hell. Henry and Davenport's lawsuit has contended that if white, 
they would have received their share of the settlement, but were shut out because of the 19th century logic that as black people, their cognitive functioning was probably already impaired before they ever took the field. This contention wasn't first made by Henry and Davenport. It was the clinicians who evaluate the former players for compensatory damages who blew the whistle. They are the ones who feel hamstrung by the race-norming barometers set forth and have admitted to one another that they are implementing a discriminatory process. Roger Goodell's response to this, made during Super Bowl week, was openness to changing the process, but he was also quick to say, the federal court is overseeing the operation and implementation of that settlement, and we are not part of selecting the clinicians, the medical experts who are making decisions on a day-to-day -day basis. However, there is a sleight of hand at play in Goodell's comments, which are too slick by half. Yes, it's true that these clinicians are not from the NFL, but it is their baseline assessment program that chooses and pays for these independent clinicians. Also, it is the NFL concussion settlement program manual that makes the recommendation for clinicians to use what the manual calls a quote, full demographic correction where the cognitive scores of players is measured up against people of the same quote-unquote race. According to an email attained by ABC News, one clinician wrote to another, quote, I'm realizing and feeling regretful for my culpability in this inadvertent systemic racism issue. As a group, we could have been better advocates, end quote. Or as Naja Davenport said, what the NFL is doing to us right now when they use a different scale for African-Americans versus any other race that's literally the definition of systemic racism. The fact that the NFL in any form approved of this practice and the determination of concussion benefits is in and of itself a scandal. It speaks to far grander problems in a league that depends upon the sacrifice of black bodies and minds to survive, yet offers up few high profile off the field job opportunities for any black people, former players or not. The number of black executives and head coaches combined can be counted on two hands, and the number of black franchise owners stands at less than one. Their comfort with race norming feels more like a part of a bigger picture than an outdated manual or a clinician's snafu. It demands nothing short of utter eradication. That a federal judge has called for the NFL to clean this up in the shadows of mediation, away from the eyes of player advocates, only speaks to how repugnant the practice has been. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. First, the Just Stand Up Award stand up. comes courtesy of a listener by the name of Tom Baker who emailed me something that I otherwise would not have seen. It was a world-class cyclist named Dow Georgian Hart who argued directly against Zlatan Ibrahimovic 
we remember the soccer star who argued last week that LeBron should just stick to play and shut up and dribble and all the rest of it. Now, um, Dow Hart issued this response. And it's just too good. Even though I, I hadn't heard of Dow Hart, he's an incredibly accomplished cyclist, one of the best in the world. I'm just not a big fan of cycling. But this response is just too good. This is what Dow said. He said, We have again seen the return of the narrative that politics does not belong in sport in the international press in the last days, and I could not agree less. First and foremost, everything is political. We are all in this together. Secondly, there are many who simply do not have the choice whether they are political or not, because these issues so directly impact their lives and the lives of their friends, families, and loved ones. I deplore racism. I want the best for all people. Sport should be a reflection of talent, of diversity, and of all the incredible characters out there in the world. If we don't want opinions and characters in sport, let's just watch robots compete. As a fan, I don't cheer for the best rider, runner, or player. I back the one I relate to the most, the one who inspires me. There is more to sport than simply athletic ability. And championing a positive cause that you believe in is a huge part of that, of trying to leave the world a better place than you found it. Now, uh, Dow Hart also said this, and I love this. He said, I believe in the power of the bicycle, whether that be for transport, for physical health, or for mental health. The bike has connected me to so many and so much in my relatively short life. Somehow, racing remains an extension of that humble bicycle, even amongst all the fancy carbon and jetting around the world for races. So this sport should promote those values, those virtues. It should be seen as something that anyone could follow. Just stand up award to Dow Hart. Stand up! I don't even ride a bicycle. And I love that quote. Now we got the Just Sit Down Award. Sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. It goes to Peter Mather. We talked about this last week, that there was a buzz growing for Peter Mather, who was president of the Seattle Mariners and owned a 10% stake in the club, that he should be compelled to sell his stake. Mather had, of course, stepped down as president following racist comments that he made about his Japanese and Latin American players that he made to the Rotary Club, the place where all great careers go to die. Well, this week Mather announced plans to sell after it first looked like he would just be a silent partner in the team and profit from those very Japanese and Latin American players that he so disparaged. But now he's gonna sell. It couldn't have happened soon enough. Peter Mather, sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. Now I got a part of the show we call Kaepernick Watch about the latest comings and goings of Colin Kaepernick, but we kind of shifted this section of the show to talk more about the uh, adventures or misadventures of young athletes who have been taking a knee in what's happening in their lives, partly because I've got this book coming out this fall called The Kaepernick Effect, which is about that very subject. I mean, this week, people might have heard about this. It became a huge story at the end of last week is that members of a high school girls basketball team called Norman High School, Norman, Oklahoma, they knelt during the national anthem to protest systemic racism. And it was being broadcast on the National Federation of High Schools Network. They do online broadcasts of the game. And their announcer named Matt Rowan, he called them when he thought he was off the air and not on a hot mic, bleeping N-words but he didn't say bleeping and he didn't say N-words. And 
he's blaming the fact that he did that now on having low blood sugar and being diabetic. Yes, the diabetes made his racism fly, which is a new one. A little different from Myers Leonard, who used an anti-Semitic comment. Myers Leonard also could have very much won the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award for that, and then said he didn't know what the word meant. So we've got some new ones this week. You don't know what the word meant. You got the diabetes. Makes you a racist. Amazing how that works. Now, I also want to just look at this because I would love to ask Mount Rowan, okay, uh, let's get you a donut. Let's deal with your blood sugar. You know, that'll stop your racism. And then let's ask you this question. Why are you so threatened? Why are you so threatened by people taking a knee against racism? And I think by responding with racism to anti-racism, it gives the whole game away. This opposition to kneeling, it's not about the military. It's not about the flag. It's not about the anthem. It's about being against people claiming their personhood in a society that's utterly dehumanizing. And that's what they need to confront. It's about nothing other than their own racism and their own bigotry. Well, that's all we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to Trace Strangio for joining us. Uh, thank you so much. If people want to stay up on what Chase is doing through uh, Twitter or through Instagram, uh, we're going to have all of his IDs up in the description of this podcast. Thank you so much to my producer, David Tigaboo, for making this so easy. Thank you to everybody at The Nation magazine. Remember, I got a book coming out this September, The Kaepernick Watch. Y'all can pre-order. Make me happy. Support the show. For everybody out there listening, you can also support the show by going to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. If you like the show, support the show. It allows us to do it. For everybody out there listening, mask up, stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.
At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.